For the first time ever, you're listening to the No Gray Areas podcast with Patrick McCullough. Our first guest is no other than Joseph N. Gagliano himself, author and creator of No Gray Areas. They kick off the conversation by discussing what No Gray Areas is about and why it was written. Let's jump in. So Joe, here we are, episode one of No Gray Areas is pretty exciting. Um, but one of the things that's exciting is actually we have some some great things coming down the pipeline, don't we? So tell us about some of those. Yeah, we have some um, some things that have happened that have just been really, really cool. Um, we partnered up, the No Gray Areas platform, partnered yeah. up with an organization called Ambassadors of Compassion. Great organization. Yeah, yeah. and they're an organization that uh, has curriculum approved for kids and schools, um, high schools and colleges and really working with kids in terms of the pressures that kids face in today's society. There's a lot I mean, of them, it's, isn't there? it's, it's staggering. You yeah. look at this COVID nonsense, you look at, um, suicide rates, you look at depression, you look at, you know, bullying, all this mm-hmm. stuff that these kids mm-hmm. are facing. So this program, this curriculum, um, is really geared towards them. Um, we partnered up using my, my crazy story, and um, we're in the process of making a, a feature film. Yeah. So, out, of, out of your book, right? So yeah, out of the up. book. No gray areas. Yeah, out of the book. And uh, we, we brought on a, a, a film writer, uh, a screenwriter called uh, Louis Colick, who's just really revered uh, in Hollywood. He's had several, several hits. Um, and he's taken the story and done a masterful job with it. So we're looking at starting filming uh, first quarter next year. We did a Netflix documentary that's going to drop um, October with Netflix. We filmed that right before COVID happened, and it got pushed back a few quarters because of COVID. So that's all in the works. Yeah, we got some really cool stuff and using using the story for a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. I was on a couple of those phone calls with the scriptwriter, and he's doing a marvelous job. Like I, I can't wait to see this movie. It's going to be amazing. But the, the book now, you wrote that from an interesting location. Um, most people who have <laughs> written books didn't write it from the location you wrote it from. Where did you write this book from? And I, I, you know, I had some time on my hands, Pat. And uh, I, I literally typed the book out on a antiquated typewriter with no correction tape inside of a federal prison. You know, and, and I never had visions of publishing it. I never had visions of doing anything with it. I mean, I always had a vision that, hey, my my silly story can be used for a better purpose, a greater purpose. It could help kids. It could maybe give people a roadmap, but I never really knew how to put that whole thing together, right? right? Mm-hmm. So when I started typing, um, I went to the law library four or five hours a day when I was in prison, and it was a a good use of the downtime because you can really get yourself in trouble with certain people and certain yeah. things and certain free times in prison. So I sat there, I just spent four or five hours a day in the law library and typed out each paragraph and and had the guts of the story and chronologically went through my whole life and um, did it for the purpose of wanting to give my story to my four kids on paper. I was thoroughly convinced when I turned myself into prison that uh, I was going to get shanked or something was going to happen to me while I was in there. I've seen the movies. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Something was going to happen and I wasn't going to come home. And 
here my kids were going to think, uh, you know, my dad was a felon. He died in prison. Man, I didn't want that narrative going on in my life. So I, um, I wanted to type out the story and really, and it was cleansing in a weird way because I was able to go all the way through my childhood, all the way to what landed me in prison and really isolate the choices that were made along the way and the consequences of those choices. And I didn't plan the book at first to be a book about a cautionary tale, uh, consequences of choices. It just morphed into that. And that's what's so cool about it right yeah. now. And that's what people that have read it and reviewed it and the comments, that's what I keep going back to that's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you sat down to write this book to give your kids a real story, a true story of what happened, because you've been in the news a lot over the years right. and you wanted to tell them this is what really happened, but right. it morphed into you sharing your experiences really as a warning to younger people or anybody that yeah. our choices make a difference. Our choices make massive differences. And you know, I, I, I like to say that if you, if you stray a little bit off center, if you, if you uh, compromise your integrity early mm -hmm. on in life, and you embrace a gray area, no matter how small it is. It could be one granular grain of sand, yep. for God's sakes. Uh, yep. and, and you start drifting off center and you feel it's okay because if you're playing in the gray areas, hey, nobody's getting hurt. Nobody, I didn't lie to anyone. I didn't cheat to anyone. I just fudged the truth a little bit, right? Or, but you become, you become okay. It becomes the norm for you. And then as years keep going, you keep progressing further and further and further off center. So before you know it, you're living so far out in la la land out in, and you're just, everything you're doing is in the gray area. So, but, and then there's, then there's the consequences that follow. Yeah. Because sooner or later, those choices are going to catch up to you. Someone's going to un uncover the truth. Someone's going to see behind the curtain, what's really going on. And, and, and that's when your life kind of implodes. And that's what happened to me. So you, you got to this point, which we're going to get to that part of your story in a moment, but you got to this point where you, you almost stepped back going, how did I get here? But as you <laughs> processed it, writing this book, you realized it was, it was little choices you made, uh, poor choices you made early on, right? Pat, I keep saying, man, I'm the, I'm the dumbest smart guy you'll ever meet. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could, I, I think I'm, you know, at, at 53 years old now, I, I know what my strengths are. I know I'm very creative. I know I could out-visualize and out-structuralize a lot of people. That's, what, that's the realm that I've been blessed in. I'm great at nurturing and incubating companies. So I, I, I'm good in that realm, right? But I say the dumbest smart guy you'll ever meet because I had every flipping opportunity that people dream of. I had an amazing family. My parents were married for 52 years. My dad just passed about four years ago. My mom's still, still staying strong. I had an older sister, a younger brother, a really tight, cohesive family unit. You grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah, yep. yeah. My father was a police officer in Chicago for 17 yeah. years. Definitely grew up with values of right and wrong and what's, what's, you know, what's, what's good, what's bad, and who to stay away from. Hey, don't tell that lie. You, you, you do the right thing with people. So I had, and I had all these opportunities for education as well. So I say the dumbest smart guy you'll ever meet because I blew that up. 
Mm. I blew that up just by compromising my integrity for instant gratification. Yeah. And that's what I really get back to. It, and, you know, when the ASU thing happened, it was 1993-94. You don't have... Yeah, tell us a little bit about the ASU thing. Yeah, it was 1993-94. And, you know, it, it gets back to, you know, what I was saying about compromising your integrity for immediate gratification. And I was at the Board of Trade in Chicago, trading bonds, making more money than I had any right to make at the age of 23 years old. You know, living in Lincoln Park, driving silly cars, um, and just doing well and I was full of myself but you know I say that um, we're all products of our environment you know we're all products of our environment so true and the environment that I was in at the Chicago Board of Trade almost embraced the gray areas you know yeah like I say thing I say something that maybe some people don't really get or they're not they're going to laugh at or scoff at and and I say to use the words honest ethical successful trader is a flipping oxymoron <laughs> those don't fit huh? it doesn't exist yeah. if you're successful on the trading floors trading your own account you're playing in the gray areas i don't care how you want to yeah. how you want to justify it or chop yeah. it up Man, so at 23, you're seeing that every day. Man, every watching. day. Yeah. That was my environment. Like, I'm, I'm a young clerk, and then I became a, a, a runner. Well, I was a runner, then a clerk, and, and, and then I started eventually trading my own account. But the guys that I looked up to were the, the big boys in the pit, the, the men, the women in the pit that were crazy successful. Yeah. And um, those were the people I emulated. Those were the people that I wanted to be. But then you start learning more as you get sharper with the ways of the world you start seeing what they're doing to get there who they're friends with who they're hanging around with what are the retail people they're associating with and you know sure enough you say hey they're in the gray area they're not really breaking any laws here you know there's laws there's there's laws that what's right and what's wrong but man they're certainly in the gray Mm -hmm. so i you know product of our environment is 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 really really hits home with me yeah yeah well, so, so why did you name, and I want to get back to the ASU thing and have you briefly explain it, but let me ask you this first. Why the title No Gray Areas? I mean, I think we certainly are hearing you say that <laughs> phrase a couple of times. That's what you titled your yeah. book. I just think it, it, it kind of encapsulates everything that, um, you know, when I typed out the, the journey of my life and put it on paper and, you know, and I was trying to come up with a name, it took me three, four, five weeks to come up with a name, and I really started dissecting different periods of my life and different choices I made and the consequences of those choices. I really looked at, man, none of those choices are really wrong, so to speak. They were just all not right. Uh-huh. So what's what's in the middle of wrong and what's in the middle of not right? Well, you're playing in the gray area. Yeah. And it just, it just clicked. It, yeah. it clicked because it can be used in so many facets of life. It's not just, you know, what we're doing with the No Gray Areas platform it's not just my silly, crazy journey and, hey, I fixed a few ASU games 25, 30 years ago, whatever it is. It's not, it's not about that. It's applied to so many different things in life Absolutely. that we can do. These kids that have social media that just dictates their life and, and, and they have a fantasy world on social media and they, they feel all that peer pressure to get to it. Right down to an employee at a, at a large corporation that's filling out an expense report on a monthly basis. And whether he's going to put the meal he took his wife out with 
a couple of weeks ago on his expense report because really nobody's going to know or whether he's going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. What's that choice? What's that choice? The guy's going to put his resume out there and he's going to embellish it a little bit. Yeah. What's the right choice? Yeah. Is it a gray area? Is it right or is it wrong? So and what you saw in your life is when you start messing around in those gray areas, you ended up in a spot where you're going, how did I get here? Yeah. Let, let me quote something that you said in an interview that's found on your the, the platform, nograyareas.com. You said, I didn't view it as wrong. Now, I want you to explain what it is. I think you're talking about the ASU. Yeah, yeah. I didn't view it as wrong. I knew it wasn't right. That's the gray area, right? That's what yeah. you're saying. I viewed it as different shades of gray. Such yeah. a great quote. Yeah. But so the it in this quote, you're talking at that point, right, about this this ASU scandal. That, that the, the ASU scandal. I mean, it was it was 23 years old when when everything happened with ASU, and I was on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade. My, like I said a couple times, my father was a cop. Great, great, great family. Um, when it came up, you know, it, and I, I'll circle back one more time. You say product of our environment. If you're a trader, your idea of a long-term trade is probably five minutes. If you're in a trade for five minutes, really? you're an investor. You're no longer a trader. You know, So it's instant gratification all the time. Hey, I'm going to put a dollar out there. I need to make a dollar twenty in the next five minutes or I'm just doing something wrong. That's trading. Yeah. Trading at its core. Buying, selling, selling, buying, whatever it is. That's what instant gratification is. So when I, I say I didn't view it as right and I didn't, I viewed it as a shade of gray. It's I knew in my heart that I wasn't right from wrong from my father, the way I was brought up in my family. And I kind of went through the, the order of my mind. Hey, I'm not robbing anyone. I'm not raping anyone. I'm not cheating anyone. I'm, I'm, paint a few players to miss a few baskets and I'm going to go to Vegas and make some money on it. It's instant gratification. I'm going to make a trade. I'm going to make a trade here. And that's kind of how I viewed it. And, you know, I didn't view it as, you know, and, and, and thank God the federal laws for what I did conspiracy to commit sports bribery. Well, it's not really high up on the, on the, on the list in the federal government or what's good and what's bad. So caught a break there yeah yeah so let's imagine that some of our listeners have no idea we've kind of touched on this asu scandal but let's imagine a lot of them have no idea what what happened what this was just briefly tell us back in 94 right 1994 yeah it was a 93 94 basketball season for the ncaa and you know there's betting lines and you know i think 20 or 25 states now have legalized sports gambling but it's technology has really taken over that space. I mean, you can make a line in Europe and a nanosecond later, that same line is posted in Las Vegas. And so if I went to Las Vegas and bet 100000 on a game, that line in Europe is going to move a nanosecond later. I mean, technology today. But it wasn't like that in 93, no, 94. Back yeah. 25, 30 years ago, in 90, 93, 94, technology wasn't what it was today. You had bookmakers operating on campuses and all over the place with that were working off of betting lines in a newspaper. And then they knew their customers too. So you had these kids at ASU that, that maybe were from New York or from Chicago or from Philadelphia. So they loved the Giants. They loved the Bears. They loved the Eagles. And these bookmakers all knew it. So 
if a betting line was supposed to be three on, on, on the Giants, they would trump up that line to six because they knew that these kids were going to bet with their hearts and mm. not with their minds. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, was, there wasn't the technology back then. And so it was easy. And then you look at the events with the ASU team itself. You get a star, absolute stud of a basketball player by the name of Headache Smith. Like he was, they were expecting him to go in the top ten or yeah, so he was for the NBA he then. was slated for the first round of the N, the NBA draft. Yeah, you know, led the NCAA at that point in minutes played per game. You know, uh, defensive player of the year in the Pac-10. It was the Pac-10 back then, not the Pac-12. Defensive player of the year, free throw percentage leader, three point field goal leader. I mean, just and he dictated the team. Yeah, the guy played every minute of every game, just about. And he was the pulse of that team. The ball went where Headache wanted it to go. So you get him, you get a kid like that who came from a good background, came from a good background, but yet he's a starving college student. And now, you know, now we can have a whole nother lengthy conversation about, hey, Joe, but they're paying college students now. You think, you know, it's that old cliche, how much is enough? And the answer is just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So... Paying college students now doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But you look at back then when college kids and college athletes would stay in college for four years. They weren't one and done like there are now. One and done now, they're playing for their NBA career. They're they're playing for their slot inside the draft. Back then, they were loyal to their team. They they were at least a three-year player on the team, maybe if not four. But he's probably eating ramen noodles in his – Dorm room as well, right? Starving, yep. you know, personified a starving college yeah. student. Yeah. But yet the universities were making a ton of money. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. We don't have to get into all that stuff, but a starving college student. Yeah. And so there's an opportunity there. He's then. trying to make a, he's trying to make a few extra bucks on campus. He gets into a college bookmaker betting, a, you know, 50, 100 bucks on a football game here and there on an occasional basketball game. Not on himself. He never he never played that game betting on Sega video games. Sega was really popular yeah, back then, yeah. right? And um, he gets into this bookmaker on campus for 20, 25 grand. He's got no way to pay him. He's just a broke college kid, right? Yep. So this, this, the bookmaker happened to live next door to my brother. My brother was going to ASU and uh, thought of a way to forgive his debt for having him pay it off on the court. And so he called me. And I'll never forget this, Pat. I mean, I'm at I'm at home. I'm living in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago. It's a weekend. It was January, uh, early January. Which means it's cold. <laughs> yeah, man, it was cold. And it was yeah. snowing outside. Yeah. And I'm looking out the window. I'm on like the 14th floor in this really nice suburb. And, and there's a fresh blanket of snow outside. And my phone went my phone rings. I had this white portable battery phone, right? I had a home line. Yeah. And, uh, and it was this kid, Benny, Benny Silman. And he calls me and he's the bookie. Yeah. And I had built up a relationship with him. He was taking some bets from me and he always did the right thing with me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he said, you know, I'm just making small talk with him and I'm like, I'm multitasking. I'm doing other things. I really wasn't paying attention. He said, Joe, I got a fix. I said, yeah, okay, okay. And I kept talking. He said, no, Joe, I got a fix. And finally, he he knew I didn't catch on to what he was saying, right? 
and he spells it out. And Pat, here I am 25, 30 years later. I can't do the math. But I remember that sound in my mind like it was yesterday. Wow. He spells out F-I-X. I said, really? Now, there's a funny part of the story, right? Because you, you was it this phone call where he leveraged your name a little bit and you were a little upset? Was that this phone call or was that? No, it was, it was, um, okay. it was a call or two after that okay. where we came up with this brainstorm that he was going to tell Headache the basketball player that um, he didn't owe, Headache did not owe Benny the money. Yeah. He owed some organized crime guy in Chicago. The yeah. Money. And your name fits Joe Gagliano, yeah, right? That sounds like organized crime. Yeah. They were profiling me yeah. for sure. But, but you uh, weren't. We'll make that very clear. You weren't. Yeah. It was just this no. idea that you were going to leverage. Yeah. So then you put, your, put yourself in the shoes of a 20-year-old kid in college that's a basketball stud um kid from the streets he's into a bookmaker and now hey this he thinks in his mind this bookmaker i'm into is no longer this little jewish kid from campus or on on asu campus i'm into some mob guy in chicago yeah oh man what do i do now he's thinking his kneecaps are broke or something and back then you know organized crime was much more the thoughts of organized crime was much more prevalent than they are today so this kid had to be, you know, and finally Benny puts me on the phone with him and I had to play, you know, I had to play the, the heavy with him, the, the mob guy with him. And he was, yes, sir. No, sir. I'll do what you need, sir. Don't worry about it, sir. And he didn't know he's talking to some 23 year old yeah. who's really just as nervous as he was, but man, it worked. And when I, that first game, the betting line was 12 and a half or 13 and I said to myself, man, there's no way this guy's going to be able to control a game. There's nine other people on the court. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, but, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell him the game has to land on six. This way, if he misses a, by a bucket or two, if it lands 10, I'm still safe. Yeah. He said, yes, sir. I'll do it. Six it is. I mean, I remember that, Pat, like it was yesterday. Were they playing Oregon State? They played yeah. Oregon State the first game. And, um, yeah. And Did he, he do it? Did he pull it off? Landed right on six. Right on Just six. Just flipping amazing. Amazing. Because, you know, he brought in Isaac Burton, which was the, uh, I think you could call Headache the shooting guard. Some people call him the point guard, but sure shot the heck out of a ball. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Brought in Isaac Burton, which was the other guard. Oh. Um. You know, there were rumors after the fact when the story broke several years later in 98 that the center, Mario Burton, was involved. They never proved it. They never charged Mario. Mario denies it adamantly. Yeah. So, but still, even if you have headache and you have the other guard, Isaac Burton. Yeah, the two guards. You've got 40% of the offensive points in the game on average, number one. Number two is you control where the ball is going. Yeah. So if you're up and you want to drop the ball down low or if you just want to shoot, you know, bricks from the outside all day long, you control the entire tempo of the game. But you know what? A lot of people are under the misconception that point shaving is done offensively. Man, it's not done offensively at all. It's done on the the defensive side. Really? Where if you've got a guy you're guarding that's got a little bit of game, and you give him an extra foot or two on defense. 
um, and let him do his thing and not obstruct a jump shot or not let him let him get a pass off. The little things like that, they can't even be detected. You know, missing a free throw down the stretch is, you know, during during garbage time when these teams are following each other back and forth is is also a pretty easy thing to do. Yeah. You yeah. know, turning the ball over is an easy thing yeah. to do. Yeah. And you can't really say, aha, that's that's what happened, yeah. you know. So. so no one caught on right away. Well, Joe, this is actually a great place to finish this first episode. And people have to come back and listen to the next episode yeah. with you because there's a lot more to the story. And I mean, there was a lot of money on the line with this. You end up setting up a couple of other games as well. But let me just let me finish this one, which is ironic because we're calling this No Gray Areas. Yeah. You wrote your book, No Gray Areas, just to help people get to know you. See if I can figure it out. Tell me two truths and a lie, which, which is funny and ironic because this is called No Gray Areas. But tell me two truths and a lie, and let me see if I can figure out the lie. All right. All right. Let's say I care what people think. Okay. I am fiercely competitive, and I am very loyal. Well, I've known you for about a year. So I absolutely know the fiercely competitive thing is a truth. Okay. I know that. Right. Am I right? No, you're spot on. You're good. Okay. So which is the lie? The lie is I care what people think. Uh, you know, and, and uh, I'm not going to, it's that, that's a gray area right there. I'm going to tell you because it's, it's, it's a, it's a lie, but there's also a glimmer of truth because I do. I mean, yeah. There's haters out there, and I, I've learned to let to shrug the haters off for the most part. And, but really, I've learned through my journey in life that you know I'm just performing for an audience of one man, oh, and so and good. there's nothing there's nothing I could do to make everyone happy. Yeah. And people are gonna pass judgments and say, oh, he wrote a book for the money, or he's doing this for the money. Man, there's no money in a book. Yeah, there's no money in a book at all. Yeah. There's no money in a movie. The way I'm doing it. I'm doing it for a better purpose. So you're going to have people and haters out there hating. And does it bother me? Yeah, I read it. I see it. I shrug it. But I've learned that I just don't yeah. care what people you think. You can sleep at night. Yeah, I just yeah. don't care yeah. what people think. I love that. This is a great way to end this one. An audience of one. That's what you've learned in life. That's it, brother. Yep. yep. Love it. Thanks, Joe. No problem. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the No Gray Areas podcast. To dive deeper into the story, be sure to subscribe, follow us on social media, and check out nograyareas.com.